Hello, everyone. I want to thank Salem Horror Fest for accepting our pitch. And we're so happy to be here. Super, super excited. This is our first appearance ever for Salem Horror Fest. So thank you. Yeah. And before we get into this exciting movie that I just cannot wait to talk about, I'm literally bursting at the seams. Um, I just We just want to thank uh, Morbidly Beautiful, which is our podcast network and family. Morbidly Beautiful is your macabre home away from home with horror news, reviews, editorials, and more. They support everyone within the horror community from special effects artists, indie filmmakers, writers, women, LGBTQ folks, and so much more. And Kelly and I have been so happy to be part of that spooky team for over a year now. So please go to morbidlybeautiful.com to find out more. And now on with the show. Welcome to I Spin on Your Podcast. This is a monthly horror podcast brought to you by the Spinsters of Horror. This is a time once a month where Jess puts down her bloody nitty needles and I step away from the TV to discuss horror movies and sometimes other horror mediums with thoughtful analysis, research, and passion. And if this is your first time being introduced to who we are, we flew into the horror scene <laughs> July of 2018 to assist in filling the void of female voices and podcasting with our show. I spit on your podcast. As women, we knew that the genre was dominated by the masculine perspective, so we felt it was important to celebrate and encourage female horror fans while at the same time remaining inclusive to all people who love what horror has to offer. So you can find me, Jess, behind the scenes editing the podcast and crafting while Kelly is normally found in her dark basement, as you can see, with a mug of black coffee heading up our social media. We and are we're just really excited to be here at our very, not our first festival appearance, but our, our second one with Salem Horror Fest, but first for Salem Horror Fest. Yes. <laughs> So in this episode, we will discuss how Season of the Witch is representative of the dual nature within women, seen in the archetypes of the witch versus the wife. We will explore the role of the wife in Western culture and the societal expectations placed upon women in the 1970s. Also popular during this time was the rise of witchcraft and occultism among primarily white women due to the independence it created. As well, we will examine the image of the witch as representative of feminism and sexual freedom that could be seen taking place during the sexual revolution in which season of the witch takes place. As we watch Joan move from the role of a desperate, constrained housewife and mother to a sexually liberated witch, Season of the Witch suggests that she potentially traded one gilded cage for another. How does Romero's perspective about these roles compare that to alternative women living their unconventional lives in 2021? This is what we intend to find out in probing the more obscure and underrated 1973 film. So pick your poison and listen on if you dare. qualified person to understand a dream is the dreamer, which brings us to you. Oh, my God. Jeez, Tony, you scared the hell out of me. (laughs) 
callus, durable knives. They're all witches' tools, you know. Oh, I'm just interested in it. So usually Kelly and I, whenever we're doing a regular podcast episode, like to talk about our stories with the films that we are going to talk about. So Kelly, tell me your story with the season of The Witch. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I watched it for the first time for our fourth episode on Witches and Empowerment. Uh, Before that, though, how I had heard about Season of the Witch, because I hadn't, I think, not heard of it before this, that point in time, but your first podcast called The Dark Spectrum did an episode on Season of the Witch. And that's pretty much, if I can remember correctly, how I even learned about this movie existing in the first place, because it is, why we're talking about it today, a very severely underrated George Romero classic. I 100% agree with you. So yes, my first introduction with Season of the Witch was through my prior podcast, The Dark Spectrum. And when I was introduced to it, I obviously fell in love with this film. (laughs) I love it so much. I When it came out on Arrow Video, I got myself a copy, the special edition, so I can see the extended cuts. And yeah, I did a podcast episode on it. And then Kelly and I revisited again for our fourth episode because I was just so adamant. I'm like, we need to talk about this film. There's so much to talk about about this film. And yeah, and so now when we have this opportunity to pitch for Salem Horror Fest and they were like, hey, it has to be Romero themed. I'm just like, I've got the movie right for I want to talk about right now. So yeah, this is it. It's just one of my favorite movies. I think I've watched it two or three times a year now. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, you do love it. Okay, let's jump into your likes. Why do you love this movie? So I love this movie so much because like the symbolism of this film, it is so striking, especially the first like maybe 10 minutes of the film, the opening sequences, when you see Joan walking behind her husband, the brambles in her face, the symbolism of her dreams, like it is very poignant and on point about what women were experiencing back in the 1970s. And I just, I love the imagery. I love the fact that Season of the Witch, the song by Donovan is being played through and it's like a a very witchy montage, you know, as she's getting her supplies and her dresses and and it's just like there's so much critique that's happening yes it's a bit of a slow paced movie and yes it has its faults in certain in certain areas of the misogyny of this place but that's what's important about that when you're watching this film and i love the music and i love all the imagery and i can relate to it like i resonate hardcore with this film yeah i get that i can totally see why you would love this movie this is very much a jess movie (laughs) jess loves 1970s horror in films overall anyways so every time now i watch a 70s movie i'm like yes yeah i can totally see this (laughs) absolutely um for myself i do like this movie um i think it is underrated it's subtle but full of rich rich symbolism which i like a lot and i was really really happy to revisit this um there's some really great like witchcraft related scenes there's some very moving scenes of the struggles of these middle-aged women and their marriages and how deeply unhappy they are. Yeah. It is very poignant, like you said, for women then, but I also think it resonates still now in 2021, which is why, again, another reason why we're talking about it yep. is it is universal. Like it crosses generations, it crosses decades. Um, yeah, and the song, Season of the Witch by Donovan, fits 
perfectly within that movie and I love a good montage yeah yeah do you have any dislikes of this film I do. It mainly is just that it's, it is slow. (laughs) And before we started recording, I was asking Jess about the extended edition being like, wow, is it, how much more time does it add to this movie? Because it is not action packed. I'm not going to put out there and I don't want anybody to have expectations, so to speak of what this movie might be. It's not a dawn of the dead. It's not Mm -hmm. a, it's not a day of the dead, which sometimes those movies, they, you know, they kind of go along at a slightly slower pace than let's say movies of now. Um, but I think it's more thematically interesting that I think it is overly entertaining for me. Yeah, I will definitely agree with you. When people go into this film, they're like, oh, this film is done by George Romero. They're expecting like something like the crazies or they're expecting something like the or his earlier films of the zombie films. But it's not that it is very subtle. It is very just symbolic. There's so much symbolism in it. So I can understand why yeah. people would be like, nah, turned off by when they're used to that other type of film by Romero. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. What about dislikes for you? Is there anything? Well, like I said, well, before when I only had, I hadn't watched the extended cut yet. I was like, oh, the pacing of this film. I agree. It was too long. But then, but then also because I was also finding that there were scenes that were cut in such a way that I'm like, oh, there's important information that we're missing. Like who is this mm-hmm. Mary character that she talks about? I end up finding out that's the housekeeper. Cause there's a whole scene where oh. she's talking to the housekeeper and the housekeeper's like, right. Ooh, look at that outfit you're wearing. Don't get someone to you know, come after oh. you. So yeah. John has a housekeeper. She has a housekeeper. Yeah. Oh. Like, right. Okay. So yeah. there's some important points yeah. that, get cut out from the film that are actually really add to the richness of the film and really the relates to it so if anyone ever has the opportunity to see the extended cut i recommend it it obviously adds 20 more minutes to the film and of this very <laughs> slow pace but for an entirety of a film it really just adds more context to it so i don't like what they did for the original cut because it just takes out so much important information but in the new right. one yeah and yeah. you get more of that so totally by getting that i dislike it less Oh, in the sense of like, I love this film. I just, there's yeah. less to dislike for me, except for the men. But we're, we we all know that, right? We all know what they represent in this film. <laughs> like they're kind of easy to dislike. Sorry. Yeah, yeah they are. <laughs> Should we move on to Jack's wife? Yeah. So let's jump into this. So wow, how when we start this film, like I said, I wanted to start before I jump into talking about the feminine mystique and Kelly and I were still talking about the rise of second wave feminism is this film is very poignant in the very beginning of that opening sequence of Joan walking through her, mm-hmm. her she essentially shows us what it's like to be a, a woman in the 1970s. You get married, you have a baby, you lose a sense of innocence, you're a slave to your husband, he treats you like a dog, your therapist keeps you in your marriage. Like she is mm-hmm. unhappy, yeah. right? And so this is so important when you watch this because you start thinking about the feminine mystique and so in 1963 the feminine mystique was a book written by betty Friedan that sold over three million copies in dozens of language all over the world that was rebuking post uh, world war ii beliefs that women could find greater fulfillment in domestic life performing chores and taking care of children this book was astounding because it was saying to women hey you don't have to accept this this is not necessarily your role in life the only reason why you feel like this is your role in life is because this patriarchy tells you it that there's a inherent system of sexism that tells women that their place is within the home and if they're unhappy it's not because of the system it's because they're broken and they have to yeah. make themselves happy and though the feminine mystique is not at all mentioned in season of the witch we're not saying it is but we, i and we i can say think it directly relates to what joan is going through absolutely her struggle as a middle class white 
wife with a husband and a daughter, and she doesn't really appear to have a career or a job besides housewife. Mm -hmm. And yeah, the feminist mystique caused a ruckus. The feminist mystique actually like it essentially rallied against the problem that had no name. Like you said, this systemic sexism that was teaching women that their place was in the home. And so what was revolutionary about it is its reach. Word of mouth, a wife reads this book, tells all of her friends, probably in a book club, they tell their friends, they tell their friends, they tell their, like the teacher of their, you know, of their kids at school. Like their reach was incredible, passed on amongst women, amongst women. It was all about social equality. And it was so interesting because of the way it starts, right? Like Betty Friedan came up with these ideas and concepts at a college reunion where she's talking with other women, her peers in the academic field. And she's like, you're experiencing the same dissatisfaction. You are, you are, you're, oh, this is not like, we are all feeling this. And then by writing the book and making it accessible to middle-aged women in their homes and stuff like that, it took the idea of feminism from the academic world and brought it into the home and into the sphere and something that everyone can relate to and have discussions about. Absolutely. A woman's occupation essentially was housewife. And, you know, it was essentially the, our systems that were oppressing us at the time was telling us how we should live our lives, us as women. I'm saying I wasn't there in the 70s, yeah. <laughs> but it boxed them into a very mentally and emotionally unchallenging, unmentally stimulating life. Oh, yeah. And I'd say that there were folks that were opposed to, generally speaking, the feminine mystique and to, sorry, second wave feminism, which we'll talk about shortly, is because they thought it would destroy traditional family values and that mothers should really be with their children. Obviously, we know that that's the patriarchy lashing out back at it, being like, no, 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 don't challenge the norm. This is what you should be accepting and you should feel happy about that. And we see that all throughout the first half of this film with Joan and just her day to day life. And with her husband, he's so cold to her. He just Mm -hmm. treats her like she is just a fixture within his household. And if she doesn't mean, you know, and if she has everything she needs, like, I think that's very poignant, the scene in the opening of the movie where she's in the house and the guy's like doing a checkbox. He's like, oh, you have everything you need. House is fully stocked. You got this here. You got this here. You got all your checkbooks. You're really like, what more can you want? You should be happy. If you're unhappy, that's on you. And that's what the therapist keeps reminding Joe. That's on you, not on the system or your husband or your daughter, right? And so that's what the feminine mystique was able to allow her to, I would have allowed her to identify with that in herself and also talk with other women. And you see that in her conversations with her friends, like they're all in some way dissatisfied with their lives. But some people just don't want to admit that or want to go the extent that Joan will eventually go. Absolutely. And that brings us to what was happening during the time that Caesar the Witch was was a thing and when it was made is second wave feminism which was essentially between 1963 and the 1980s you know we bring up because the feminine mystique was released in 1963 so this is a really important time for change for women and very much what joan needed in her life so our second wave of feminism what was happening what is the context of joan's environment culturally what was happening at the time so second wave feminism wanted to challenge the roles that had been set out for women for centuries this was the time we wanted to fight against institutions and essentially our society and aka the patriarchy that's gonna be the last time we say that word today (laughs) which was designed to prevent women from expanding their lives and expanding their minds like i said they were boxed into very unstimulating worlds just being a housewife and i know that some some people absolutely adore the role of being a housewife. 
but this isn't about you. You're happy. This isn't you. This is somebody that is deeply, deeply unhappy and wanted to question these traditional roles and what was quote deemed appropriate for what women would want and desire and to have, you know? Yeah. Like second wave feminism was all about, you know, we were early in our first wave feminism. We're getting our, you know, inspired by the civil rights movements. We're getting our political freedom. We're getting our political rights, but that doesn't mean anything when we don't have that freedom within our own homes, within our own private sphere, which is supposed to be the woman's center of her yeah. domain, right? Absolutely, so yeah, yeah. The second wave feminism was all about women wanting financial freedom, fighting against sexual harassment in the workplace, you know, outlaw marital rape, because that was still happening, you know, the fact that their husband can just have their way with them whenever, like, you know, yeah. giving women, women a voice, raising the awareness of domestic violence. We see this in this film. Joan experiences physical and mental and emotional abuse at the hands of her husband, Jack. You know, and just making a better situation for women so they won't feel like they're trapped in these marriages or these unhappy homes and have that ability to make life for themselves at the end of the day and not feel like we are chained or we are as they are created into our home. Like, because we see a lot of symbolism of Jane, Joan is being treated much like a dog, like leashed in, collared into her kennel. And you, this is where you're, you're going to be. And this is where you need to satisfy yourself and your life. Absolutely. Essentially that... During that time, women's highest purpose were domestic and decorative. Mm -hmm. So if you challenge that, like you said, they were seen as like broken and like, why don't you want this as a woman? Don't you have these maternal instincts? Isn't it what you just desire? Don't you want to have kids and like manage your home? And that's literally all you do with your time? No. <laughs> <laughs> right? We do not. Mm -hmm. Some people do. But generally speaking, women, we want way more from our lives. And that was... And really, really important time to fight for equality, social equality. You're right. From the home. We had in 1963, the Equal Pay Act. We want equal pay for equal work. You know, jobs that were traditionally, you know, for men to be for women, vice versa. Let's everybody do the job that they want to be doing. Um, have, you know, married and unmarried women have the right to use birth control, education, equality, and very importantly, 1973, Roe versus Wade. Yeah. We wanted reproductive freedoms at this time as well. Yeah, like taking the things out of the hands of the patriarchy, once again, we're going to, you know, and putting <laughs> it back into the spheres of women, which is sex, abortions, relationship, domestic labor, being treated like human beings. And that was what women were looking for. And that's what we were fighting for. And that's what was scaring the men. One of the things that people found scary about second wave feminism was it scared the men. And they're like, oh my goodness, these women are burning their bras and like becoming like these weird, crazy individuals who are literally going to destroy their family and the crux of our whole society. We don't get these women under control. And yeah, that was not the yeah. case. Who's going to do all the housework? Who's going to take care of the children? Why can't yeah. we think of the children? Right. Right. <laughs> well, they wanted liberation, not at a, not only out of like our home, our home base, but sexual liberation as well. Mm -hmm. So home mm -hmm. work or personal lives, the invention of the birth control pill in the sixties, that was huge as well. Within five years after the birth control pill went on the market, 6 million women were taking American women. A lot of this is American. Yeah. It's an American movie, you know? So that is amazing. That puts so much of our reproductive health and status and abilities into our own hands, which was fundamental. And then in 1972, we see groundbreaking books such as The Joy of Sex. I think my parents had that in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and open marriage. Things were changing. 
yeah, the sexual revolution was happening. You know, sex was everywhere in the 70s. Like it was all about free love and exploring unconventional relationships. And we see this throughout the film in the context of Joan's daughter in this relationship with Greg that Joan is interested in. And it's unfortunate that in the original cut, they cut out this really important conversation between Joan and her friend where they talk about you can't have sex without love. Because Joan's like, well, can't you? Can't you not, you know, have sex without love? And then her friend's like, no, if you have sex, love comes with it. And Joan's like, mm, but maybe not. And Greg challenges oh, that. He's wow. like, yeah, you don't yeah. have to have, right? But that's what ha- that was happening with these, the sexual revolution was women were starting to liberate themselves from their bedroom. They were starting to have sex before marriage. They're having more casual sex, you know, because like Kelly said, the invention of the birth control, you know, and men and women just started to have sex more freely with one another. And, you know, women were expressing their desires and wanting it and, you know, taking back power and not being like, we're not the inferior sex. We're complicated, but we, and we want that to be more explored and we want to have those discussions. It's not that hard as long as you allow us into the discussion of the bedroom and not making it the man's domain. Like there's that important scene where Joan wants to, she's aroused and you could tell she wants to have sex with her husband. And she's like, "Mm, maybe he's like, we're doing good kid. Cuddle, cuddle, kiss, turn over. And you're like, Oh, okay. Like, (laughs) She's not even allowed to express her own desire because she's taught that that's inappropriate to have those thoughts, to even think about having a a liaison with someone else outside of her home. She's like, oh, my goodness, I can't I can't think about this This is Mm -hmm. terrible. I'm a Mm -hmm. proper woman. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, she doesn't. Joan doesn't really understand this more hedonistic lifestyle Mm. of, let's say, her daughter and Greg, who definitely flames inflames her lady loins um, when she first sees him um and later on but she doesn't understand it this free free love casual sex no commitments no entanglements because that's not how joan was raised i have a lot of assumptions here but just seeing how like done up she is and how just very stoic Mm. and non-emotive she is for really like the first half of the movie you know, it's kind of talking, going against like what's considered normal and what's abnormal. It's kind of what's at play here and adds to that inner conflict that Joan has in this movie. Absolutely. And you see, you know, her daughter, Nikki is kind of this representation of this seventies time because she's, she's being raised in it. This is what her life is. She gets it. And, you know, we can get into the, the movie itself, but Yes, I want to go back to that dream. So the yes, the movie, let's talk about the movie. The dream, the movie opens with this very symbolic symbolism heavy heavy oh, yes. dream. And there's a lot of those. There's many dream sequences that tell us a lot about the inner workings of Joan's mind. Yes, she's seen a therapist and he tells her that dreams reveal truths. And yes, you are feeling trapped and isolated. Absolutely. And if I think I remember correctly, he even says like, but isn't this of your own doing, Joan? Yep. And yes, yes. And a portion of it, it is Mm -hmm. like, there's obviously societal pressures, familiar fresh pressures to be in that kind of situation. And like so many people were married at that time. That was very prominent at that time. The merit, so quick facts, marriage rate was the highest in 1920 at 92.3%. That makes a lot of sense for the 1920s, right? Yeah, yeah. But, you know, going into like since 1970 to now, the marriage rate has declined almost 60%. Less people are getting married, but it was still super common at that time. It was still expected. That is... Yeah, that's just what you do. You get Mm -hmm. married, Mm -hmm. you have kids, you die. And that's just kind of how it was for her. So she, yes, she 
consciously went into this, but I think there's also the unconscious pressures that we all feel and have living, just being a human being in this society, right? Conflicting pressures between herself, her family, her husband, society. But what I thought was really interesting of that, the opening scene. So yeah, Joan is walking, walking, sorry, walking behind Jack while he reads the newspaper. They start moving through the branches only to have them hit and injure her. Then there's this moment where Jack is eating an egg and Joan sees a baby on the ground. My interpretation is that he is in charge of her fertility. Her reproduction is left on display, right? And then we see Joan swinging in a white dress. What does all of that normally symbolize? Purity, virginity, chasteness, sweetness, passivity. Yeah, but this loss of innocence, that that's her sweetness, her, her, her girlhood given away to this man who neglects her and has no care for her well-being at the end of the day. Then we see later on, and you briefly mentioned this earlier, but she, there's this nether dream. Again, these dreams are very, very important to the overall narrative of this movie, where a man is showing Joan her own house, yeah. not just any house, her own house, going room to room, telling her what this wonderful house has to offer. Here is this person. This is what they offer you. And, you know, a phone, a phone book. Got to do your taxes. Don't forget to pay those bills. This mm-hmm. has everything that you should need. Meaning, Joan, you should be happy here. This yeah. has everything you could possibly need. Yeah. As women apparently don't need anything else in life besides a phone, a kitchen, washer and dryer, mm-hmm. you know. But then it makes sense where she sees herself in a mirror and she is an old hag. And what I love about that scene too is he mentions quite often as he's doing his checklist, like, you know, you have this and these interesting channels and, you know, Billy, and he can help you with all these things and et cetera, et cetera. And it's like almost accepting that, yes, we understand. We see that you're unhappy, but there's some things that you can do off to the side that your husband doesn't need to know about, or maybe he does know about, (laughs) maybe he does know about, but he's accepted it because you're making yourself somewhere happy somewhere else and not, it's not really his problem. And that also kind of like relates down later into the, into the, film about how like we have these white upper class middle class women these wops choosing these really kitschy things to distract themselves to make themselves happy right but they don't really know who they are they're just gearing their words to to the etcetera's to Mm. find fulfillment in their life even though you know they're not happy we know you're not completely happy with the fact that you're here's your gilded cage and this is it for you um yeah but we will accept the the misdemeanors that you will do later as long as yeah, it doesn't hurt yeah. your husband and the reputation that he yeah. has to sustain. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I like the, the, the et cetera, et cetera, distraction thing because your foundation mm-hmm. is not good. Your foundation is unhappy. This, all these extra things can only bring you fleeting moments of joy. You got to change your foundation. And there was another really great moment in the movie that I found where it was Nikki and Greg. So Joan's daughter and Greg, her boy, Mar- not even, not her boyfriend. They're just banging. They're just banging. They're just banging. They just hang up every once in a while. Yep. yep. Hanging out. He's an um, instructor too. <laughs> he's a <laughs> Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And then Joan's friend, Shirley, and they're all kind of hanging out and sweet, poor, poor Shirley is super drunk. But Greg says, she's like, she has so much life in her. Like there's so much going on. She's full of life and vigor, but she's too uptight to do anything about it. Mm -hmm. When we see Shirley, who is desperate and obviously struggling in her status in life and in her marriage, she is a bored wife, right? She states drunkenly that she's past her prime, but she's tearful because she's not done yet. Your life is not over. It doesn't have to end once you become married, but that's what you're taught. 
that this is just your life now. You do not get anything else now. That's it. This is it. And she gets mad at Joan when Joan questions that and be like, well, do you think so? Like maybe? And she's like, who are you to talk about this? You know nothing. You have no experience. How dare you talk down to me? This is what we do. This is what we have and accept it. And if you can't accept it, well, then fine. Like that's on you. But like, she is very closed off. Like she's like, I was given this narrative when I got married and I have to die in this narrative. And Joan's like, well, I'm questioning the narrative. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what the whole season of the witch is about. (laughs) Why we're here today. Yeah. Question the narrative. And there's this other poignant moment that I noticed uh, this time around watching the movie. And it's when they're Joan and Shirley Jones driving her home because poor Shirley is super drunk. Mm -hmm. And Shirley says to her, please come over to my house. Just come home with me because if you're not there, he won't jump all over me. And that's regarding her husband and her coming home drunk, meaning that he will be mad if she's come, she comes home drunk because you see her husband standing in the doorway, arms crossed, mad that she has a life. Yeah. She's gone out with her friend. She's got drunk. Sure. Hey, we do that, but she's coming home late and he's mad. Because she's had, this is how I'm interpreting it. She's mad because she has a life outside of the home, a little bit, at least a minuscule amount of happiness outside the home. Well, also too, he is probably angry at her for like, you're not controlling your liquor and stuff like that. So you're an embarrassment in front of our friends and our peers, you know, because, they're, and they're all going to gossip about it. They're all going to talk about, you know, how drunk yeah. Shirley got type thing. Yeah. So it's, it's yeah. all about reputation and status as well, too, especially among all these guys. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, There is one thing that we would be remiss if we did not note about the feminine mystique and Betty Friedman's, Frieden, sorry, ideas. So she was criticized by some feminists for her lack of attention to issues that affected non-white, poor, and lesbian women. And apparently she made some not so great remarks later on in her career as well to these, these people, which is terrible, terrible. The feminine mystique was really geared towards not an invalid place, but to our white middle to upper class women. Yeah. And then we, and and also, we also need to address too, that because second class, second wave feminism really kicked off because of this book and because of these ideas, second wave feminism is really primarily focused on the white middle-class woman and their experience. And it, it does tend to not look at the the side of people of color and the women of color and what they were experiencing as well. So there is some uh, racism within it as well. And it really clumsily addresses racism and their, and how it also alienated women. So we just, we can't, we will be remiss not to mention that as well. Totally. Cause you know, talk about bring up the fact of white privilege and yes, you're mad because you, you maybe want to work, but you don't actually have to work because your husband's making enough money to sustain all of you. And aren't you lucky that you get to have that? And now you're mad again, definitely not saying their unhappiness is unvalid, but it's just a bit more nuanced than that. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. So we want to jump into the witch and the hungry wives. Let's talk about our hungry, hungry wives. <laughs> <laughs> Cause that's what they were. Yes. <laughs> they were starved for something else. They want life. <laughs> yes. Yes. We all want life. They desired life outside the home. Yeah. Yes. So another thing that was happening in the 70s, besides sexual revolution, second wave feminism, was the rise in interest in occultism and witchcraft. Mm-hmm. So witchcraft spread like wildfire through the feminist movement in the 60s and 70s. Essentially, they go hand in hand. The witch, and we've talked about the witch many times, 
is the original rebel against the patriarchy third time. (laughs) (laughs) But there is a massively strong link between second wave feminism and the symbol of the witch. Witches symbolize opposition to patriarchal forces and, you know, essentially allows that the personal is spiritual. And this is a time of Joan. Yeah. So in the 1970s, we saw this like Americanized version of Wicca transform itself um, into a magic based pagan, a pagan discipline that is more nature based and spiritual movement, but with heavy tones of environmentalism and feminism. So just a very brief thing. Uh, Wicca or being Wiccan is like another subsection of being a witch um, that started more in the 1940s. It does have uh, it is rooted in feminist beliefs because you're worshiping a female deity or a goddess um, and you're core tenants are all about advocating the environment and women's rights and body and promoting positive energy. However, it's very traditional in the sense that it does have a lot of a bit of a patriarchal structure to the way things are. So witchcraft in itself is more of a branching away from that. And really what Kelly was saying, embracing feminism, embracing the ideas of when you're entering into religion, attracted to a female deity, you're also facing and questioning misogynistic beliefs and the organizations of the structure. And one of the most fundamental books in the 1970s that came out to inspire witchcraft among women in the 1970s was The Spiral Dance, um, a rebirth of the ancient religion of the great goddess uh, done by Starhawk. It took Wicca, it took witchcraft to a new level of spirituality, of feminist spirituality. It was, it was an idea of reclaiming the, a woman's right to be a witch and to be powerful. This book came out in 1979. And this is where women were able to start explore the goddess traditions and feminist spirituality and connecting to the fem- the symbolism of feminism within the ideas of the witch. Because the witch represents women's power, the inner power within us, and is not part of a hierarchical structure. It is, is something on its own and is asking women to trust their own intuition and to no longer suppress themselves. But it became very taboo because you're incorporating this with feminist movements and we get the rise of political organizations in 1968, which is the with which the women's international terrorist conspiracy from hell, which was going out in the streets and organizing public protests in street theater actions to really be a counterculture to the patriarchy, right? And to questioning things like, why are we getting married? You don't need to get married. Like questioning these things that we are told is supposed to be normal in our society. Yeah, there's been like this centuries of a blending between feminine Mm -hmm. power, feminism, witchcraft, the symbol of the witch. Absolutely. So it absolutely makes sense that we saw an uptick in the interest in that. So why are women drawn to witchcraft? Why was Joan attracted to these witchy women that she would (laughs) hear about, right? And like you're saying, yes, women are drawn to witchcraft, for the power and self-worth, they can express their femininity, lose the oppression from a lot of main religious organizations and belief systems, which are often very patriarchal. They're very oppressive and they don't look too kindly on women and allow us to have the freedom that we desire in life as a human being. And I really liked the idea of feminist spirituality. I just liked that as a term. I thought that that was really wonderful. And I think it fits fairly wonderful within the movie. Essentially rejecting religion as a tool of the patriarchy. This is their own place, their own religion, at least their own belief system, sense of power. We know witchcraft has been historically very rebellious, but also self-empowering. Joan is able to 
ask questions, right? And then within witchcraft, within the ideas of feminist spirituality, she's able to start asking questions and start getting the answers that she's seeking for within herself, not outside of herself, but within herself and trusting herself. That's one of the things that women are constantly taught, you know, in the 1970s and obviously now, not to trust ourselves, not to believe mm-hmm. our own feminine, our own knowledge and our own ideas and just to be, t- listen, to do what we're told and to not question. Yeah. And Joan yeah. is questioning. And that is what, when I look at the rise of witchcraft in the 1970s as coinciding with that of the feminist movement and sexual revolution is women are questioning. They're asking questions. They want more answers. They don't want to believe that this is it for me in life. This can't be it. I need to know more. And rising (laughs) up against the things that continuously try to suppress us. And like Kelly said very early on in the beginning of this, political upheaval and the rise of witchcraft go hand in hand. They are, you know, we see this because the witchcraft is all, which is all about opposition. She's our internal rebel. She will always constantly question what is being told to her. And she'll always want to know more. And she'll always want to have that ability to exert her own power and her own voice as well. And we have, and we've talked, definitely talked about this folks. If you haven't listened to us before, mm-hmm. um, I talked about how historically, again, witchcraft is also related to devil worship. Ooh. Yes. But devil worship was more seen as a distortion of the worship of our of the horned god. And the horned god represents the spirit of the hunt, of animal life, and vitality. But also the wilderness, nature, sexuality, and the life cycle. And that'll come into play in this movie. But witchcraft allowed women to get, regain personal strength, autonomy, confidence. And that is a big one that we see in this yes. movie. An increase in confidence and empowerment in their lives, but also in a patriarchal society, women are only valued through their reproductive years. Mm-hmm. And that is the opposite of witchcraft. They, you know, Wicca generally, you know, we, they worship a goddess in three forms, the new moon, the full moon and waning moon essentially appreciates and celebrates all life stages of a woman. The idea of the unruly witch and her sexuality and embracing all her various stages threatens the nuclear yeah. family. The nuclear family yes. is set up within a box, within a home. You have a hierarchy. With, with, when, when a literal woman, box. Literally. You're literally <laughs> in a box. You're literally yeah. in a hierarchy. Like, you know, you know, what does mom say? Well, what does dad say? Because ultimately it's going to be his word at the end of the day, right? But then that doesn't happen. You know, the modern witch is able, is challenging when well, I'm saying the modern witch. The witch of the 1970s was challenging that narrative and continually challenges that narrative by saying, I don't want to live in a box. My, my world, the world is my home. I am one with nature. And like Kelly, you said, you're bringing up the images of nature, the horn gods. You know, we see Joan outside in the woods, gathering herbs and stuff like that. Like she is taking herself outside of the public sphere, outside of the private sphere and made herself public and made herself known to the world. Absolutely. So coming back to our movie here at the beginning, we see Joan and her friends are all talking about this resident witch, this witch friend that they know, but they're also kind of laughing at the absurdity of some of these more new agey ish beliefs. They kind of think it's nonsense. Mm -hmm. Joan less so less. So she's very intrigued. So her and Shirley go to see our resident witch for a tarot reading, which peaks and spikes Joan's interest, but also fear in this world. 
But again, this was a time that people were getting more interested in these otherworldly powers. And like, what was this? Is this magic? What is this witchcraft? What does this actually mean? What does this do? What can this do for me? Which I thought was really interesting because the beginning, everybody's kind of just guffawing. They're like, oh, you know, whatever. Oh, the witch. Yeah. You know, so I thought that that was really well, interesting because we get to, you know, the movie. Well, because like, <laughs> and they're like, they're making fun, like, oh, they're dancing yeah. out and howling naked. Yes. And yeah. Stuff yeah. Like that. The and they, they, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Ooh, the devil's going to get our daughters. Right. Because that's, and again, the Catholic church saying, oh, the devil, if you bring the devil into your home, you're destroying your family and you're yeah. leading your women into temptation and stuff yeah. like that. But they make fun of it because they're just like, oh, it's just another fad. It's just another kitschy yeah. thing for us to get involved yeah. with. Or, or that's just really weird. But yeah, Joan is like, yeah, like you said, she's interested because she's there's something in within her that she's like wait a second i'm having these dreams and they're kind of like premonitions in her mind we said right. that, we see yeah. that later on like especially yeah. at one point when marion the witch says something as oh when you have dreams and she's like oh what do you mean like premonitions and she's like oh okay like you know like she within herself has these totally. ideas and these questions and these feelings but she doesn't know how to express them and she can't talk to her friends about them because they just laugh and it's just like you know, I laugh it off and be like, ha ha ha, that's just, you know, funny, funky stuff. Like no one yeah. really believes that. Right. And Joan's like, well, yeah. maybe I do. Maybe yeah. I think about these things as well. Yeah. So she holds that in until mm-hmm. the end of the movie, which we'll yeah. get to at the end, but absolutely. And I want to go back to the dream. So she later on in the movie starts having these dreams of this intruder with a mask, uh, yeah. which kind of looks like maybe it could be the horned God of mm-hmm. Mm-hmm witchcraft descent right she's afraid of this intruder he forces himself into her safe comfortable space her safe convenient comfortable space her home and onto her so like i said the horned god represents the spirit of the hunt animal life vitality nature wilderness sexuality and the life cycle and she keeps having she has multiple dreams of this intruder into her life and perhaps he is representing the fear of change in yes, her life and the like fear that. of sex yeah which I think she feels absolutely because change is huge. Change can be anxiety driven. It can be so scary. And also sex can be, especially let's talk about again, our context of the seventies that sex and going outside that box and trying to be more sexually liberated and sexually free is terrifying, especially if it's not how you've been raised. That's not what you know. Mm -hmm. And God, I'm sure Joan and her husband almost never have sex. Oh, <laughs> probably, right? Well, the fact that he can't even kiss her on the forehead when he says goodbye to her. Like, he barely oh, yeah, even he didn't her. even he make the, didn't even touch doesn't her. Doesn't even touch, like, kisses air and leaves. But, like, he doesn't even notice her. He doesn't no. even notice how she's changing. Like, it is yeah. significant. Like, when you're watching this film, you see, and, like, you brought it up earlier about, like, how constrained Joan was um, earlier as, like, the unhappy housewife. Hair tightly put back. She's very dressed, very formally, right? And she's very uptight. Like, she doesn't like when yeah. Craig, like, Greg swears or something like that. Yeah. Even though he's, like... Yeah are you sure you don't like it? And she's like, yeah. no, I don't like it. He's like, well, just, just, just tell me then. But then you see in the movie that she gets more, her hair is always down. She wears more flowing outfits and her husband doesn't even notice. Doesn't even notice. Doesn't even oh yeah. Notice how she's Those looking. outfits. <laughs> right. Like how can you not notice how your wife is not dressing differently? Cause he doesn't see her as an individual. She is just a fixture in her home. Home. 
And I think so when you, and the dreams also correlate with that and her, and her change yeah. as well. Like I really like how you bring up that idea, like that in the very beginning of these dreams is horn God coming in because it's like this idea of change and transformation within her. And as um, in the dream, she acts very perilous to it. Like she doesn't know how yeah. to defend against it or to fight for herself. She doesn't have that empowerment with, but like, as you see, as she's growing in her own empowerment, as like embracing the identity of the witch, the dreams change as well. And mm-hmm. the dreams, the intruder is no longer this, I feel like this idea of change, it becomes her husband because she's like, I don't want yep. him coming back. I don't want to go back to this life. So she arms yep. herself, right? Yeah. But she learns how to protect herself as these dreams go on too. Yeah. And it's like, as she's learning Absolutely. more about herself in the witchcraft and this idea of empowerment and yeah. speaking up for herself and embracing yeah. this life that doesn't have to be scripted, doesn't have to be yeah. an escalator. It could be something else. Absolutely. So she's like, time for a change. And then she goes witchy shopping. And then a song comes in. And that's amazing. And she gets her candles and her herbs and her cauldron and everything that a witch, I'm assuming, would have. Yes, we would have those (laughs) on our altars. I'm like, I have yet to get myself a a knife thing, but one day I will. (laughs) She becomes a solo practicing witch. And then Mm -hmm. when we talk about the end of the movie, she's initiated into a coven. But I want to kind of talk about, yes, the sexuality aspect of it is massive. Um, Sexual revolution, sexual liberation, sexuality as a witch, everything kind of starts changing. She meets Greg, libido, yeah. kind of very repressed libido starts bubbling up to the surface. She hears her daughter having sex with Greg, which in her mind are like, that's kind of weird, but that's not really the point. The point mm. is, is that it hits her, her, hits her libido hard. It's she's so repressed and she cries. And that is so, so much an important, important part of this. And then her husband, Jack gets mad because she didn't stop her child from having sex mm-hmm. and hits her and calls her a sick woman. Yeah, he goes after her in the sense of just like, how can you let this happen? This is inappropriate as a, as a, you know, the wife and mother, you should have gone in there. And he said, you should have kicked some ass. He says this yeah. quite often to Joan. Yes. We're yeah. kick, you should kick some yeah. ass. Every time he's like, when that child gets home, we kick her ass. You're like, yeah, wow. Like, yeah, you think so beating your daughter and your wife is going to, and you know, force them to be in this box that they're completely unhappy in, right? His daughter ends up running away from home. You know, I'm assuming other reasons, like she's obviously scared of her father and probably a little bit mortified that her mother overheard her having sex. But at the same time too, though, I love that scene where, yeah, Joan, she is encapsulating that sexual energy because she is so repressed and she wants it so bad. And watching the film again today, I love when she does, like she uses her spells, she conjures Greg to her. And mm-hmm. I remember a couple of times when I watched it, I'm like, oh, is it really the magic that she's conjuring her to her? And does Greg really come? Or is it really just a failed spell? And she just realized she has to call. But I'm like, no, in doing her ritual, in encompassing herself as a witch, she got the confidence. She got the, this is what I <laughs> yes. want. I want yep. Greg to come here and bang me. I'm going to yep. call Greg be like, hey, you remember the old yep. woman that you said it wasn't yep. come here and fuck me type thing? Like, pardon <laughs> PG for Salem Horror Fest, but... Like, <laughs> I was trying not to swear. Good job. But, yeah, but she has that confidence <laughs> yep. within herself. And that's yep. what I love about witchcraft is 
the confidence in this, the power within to trust your own instincts and your own desires and what you want and just go for yeah. it. Yeah. It's so funny that you said that because that's exactly what I thought. Exactly my notes. She does this spell to try to conjure Greg over to her. But for me, the way that I see it as a different person, mm-hmm. I see that witchcraft is the illusion of having control over your life. But what it does is actually gives you the confidence. It yes. gave her the confidence to make that call and have an affair with a younger man. Yes. And that's what I think is the most important aspect of that is that it gave her confidence. She never would have done that before that. Absolutely not what she had in any idea to have an affair. Well, not even in her own house because they have sex in their house. Yeah. Not in her bed, yeah. but in her house, you know? So life is reviving. It's starting to happen. It's, you know, like I said, libido's bubbling to the surface. Things are starting to change. She's starting to smile and laugh. You don't see yes. much of that in that first half of the movie, but yeah. we do now once she starts expressing herself, having something for herself as well, which is the witchcraft. That is literally for her and she keeps it away. Which brings us to something on what we want to talk about, um, because obviously in Season of the Witch and the rise of witchcraft in the 1970s, as it was very white. And it's still kind of, in a way, very white. But we're going to talk about this in the 1970s. So the turn to witchcraft, it tends to sometimes be a trend. And this gets brought up a couple of times in the movie where the women are like, this is just a fad. You know, you're just getting into this. And Joan is actually really curious because she says, I'm afraid if I get into this. Right. And yeah, Greg challenges her on this being like, this is nothing. You're just one. Yeah. You just wanted to get bald lady. And this is what all this is. <laughs> it's just following. It's just sex. Right. Yeah. You're just, yeah. Yeah. you're saying the devil made me do it, but she's like, no, I'm actually really curious. And Marion also challenges her as well and says, if you're getting into this, this is serious. This isn't just mm-hmm. like you deciding that oh, I'm going to wear something witchy today and feel very witchy vibes. It's this is a lifestyle. These are traditions. These are passed on from family to family to family. And one of the things that we tend to forget is that a lot of witchcraft in itself has a lot of origins in folklore and traditions of other cultures. Absolutely. And finding out the appropriateness of which we should be able to use a certain spell and a ritual that is not appropriating from another culture, such as, you know, voodoo or Haitian or even in, you know, Jewish lore, like all these different elements of where, you know, magic kind of resides. There is a complex history of witchcraft and disenfranchised spiritualities that is borrowed from. Yeah. White people love to borrow things and say it's their own culture. It's a hodgepodge of other cultures. And then we call it our own. First folks are colonized and then they're demonized. And then we appropriate it and we whitewash it. And we see that. And I know, well, that's like, it's important in the seventies for sure, but we see it now in modern kind of internet, TikTok witchcraft, right? Witchcraft has a colonialist history. We we demonized other spiritual practices for a long time of indigenous people, of survivors of the slave trade. It's just being mindful of where your practice comes from. People end up being so, and you would see it in the seventies, we'd see it now, but they get so focused on the aesthetics of witchcraft, the astrology, the beautiful, look at all the tarot decks I have Mm -hmm. and the crystals and then this and then that, but they actually lose sight of core values and the core belief system, because that's what it is. It is a belief system that is connecting to yourself, to your community and to the earth. Yeah. And so one of the important things I like, obviously there is this allure to, you know, just old witchcraft, but also modern witchcraft is because anyone can reclaim their power through like a hodgepodge of, of spiritual mysticism. But there are like you were saying earlier, like there are 
borrowing from various oppressed groups. And you, it's important to differentiate between an aesthetic and an actual practice. Witchcraft mm-hmm. in itself is more than just pretty Instagram pictures of all your crystals and all of your wonderful things. And I know that I, for myself as a witch, have had to go back and be like, ooh, smudging is not appropriate. I should not have white sage because this is part of a Native American tradition. And this is a spiritual practice that you know, I need to separate myself from. And like, there are elements for women. Like we're not saying that women, white women can't practice being witches. We do have a history. We do have elements of witchcraft that do exist within the, in more of an older folklore tradition. If you go back to Gaelic and you go back to more of the Wiccan, you know, the English practices, but there are elements within modern witchcraft that don't necessarily belong. The ideas of chakras, like coming, that comes from Hinduism. That is part of a religious practice. Um, and so it's remembering to respect where these original ideas came from and making sure that they get the proper honor they they come from and the proper credit too. There's a huge thing about, you know, a lot of appropriation from voodoo and stuff like that uh, among white witches and not remembering that, hey, we need to remember that this is connected to the history of ancestors of a lot of people of color and it's important yeah. because they used those elements of that witchcraft as a form of activism and dismantling systems of oppression Absolutely. so it's always important to follow support and honor all witches especially witches of color and of different or of different cultural and spiritual practices exactly respect where your craft comes from and understand that there is a weight behind calling yourself a witch I don't think that term should just be thrown around because guess what privilege Mm -hmm. folks being called a witch in different countries can lead you to ostracization, abandonment, and death. Yes. Like that is not, so just be mindful of what you're calling yourself because you like the aesthetics of crystals and maybe you like tarot readings. Mm -hmm. Maybe you're not actually a witch and just remember that there is context and there is more important aspects to being a witch than just saying, I am a witch. We all say like, one of the most important things among the witchcraft community is we always want to say like, the way you practice is the way you practice. There is no standard to how you practice as a witch. However, be respectful and mindful of the of the things that you're getting involved in and make sure that credit and appropriation goes to where it needs to go. At the end of the day, how you practice is how you practice, but just being respectful and mindful of your practice and remembering where it's coming from. And, and just remembering that when you are practicing as a witch, and we see this in you know, season of the witch that Joan is constantly asked, if you are doing this, this is a very serious thing. You're not just doing this for shits and giggles. You're not just doing this, you know, to have all the lovely trappings around a house and have that spirituality and confidence. There is a weightiness that comes with calling yourself a witch, because at the end of the day, being a witch is part of a political and social upheaval and, uh, and activism. And even when I, as we'll get into later, uh, discovered my own journey into witchcraft, I realized that calling myself a witch comes with its own trials and tribulations as well. So should we move on to season of the the witch? Yes, let's do this. All right. So now it's 2021. Where are we at? Who are we? Why are we talking about all of this? (laughs) Why should you care? Why should you listen to us? And where is like, where are we at as women in 2021 viewing season of the witch as a movie? Where are we at with regards to marriage, kids, divorce? Here we are context 2021. I myself personally have never been married. I've never wanted to. There was never any interest in it. I didn't see any value in getting married ever. Even as a kid, there was just, I was not one of those little girls that dreamed about weddings and dreamed about et cetera, et cetera. It didn't mean anything to me and it still doesn't. And I'm going to say that I do recognize that this definitely comes from a place of a, like a privileged standpoint, because in many areas of the world, 
our fellow LGBTQ folks are not allowed to marry the people that they love. And for me in 2021, I resonate very strongly to this movie. As you can tell, I love this movie because I was once an unhappy wife. I was once married. You were a hungry wife. I was a hungry, well, yeah, I went from being, you know, Nathaniel's wife to a hungry wife to a season of The Witch. Literally, this movie is... I know. Kind of what I experienced because this is not, these ideas are not gone. These still exist. This I remember thinking that I needed to get married. I needed to have a house. I needed to have a child. Even as a bisexual woman at the time, I was just like, well, this is what we do. This is how we, this, I need to follow what we call the relationship escalator to be a successful woman, white woman in this generation, in this society. So what Joan was feeling in the 1970s still exists today. It's still yeah, part of our day-to-day life. And so I understand what it's like to be married. I understand what it's like to be divorced. I understand what it's like to reinvent yourself. So let's get into this. <laughs> <laughs> well, we do have some American statistics, but about 90% of people in Western cultures marry by the time they're 50 years old. Mm-hmm. In the United States, about 50% of married couples divorce, the sixth highest divorce rate in the world. But we have to say uh, both marriage and divorce rates have decreased between 2009 to 2019. And according to the U.S. Census Bureau survey, the top three reasons for divorces were incompatibility, infidelity, and money issues. Yeah, so the rise of a divorce has an interesting history. So, and this is, we're talking U.S. right now. Um, In 1969, Ronald Reagan, he signed the first, uh, signed the nation's first no-fault divorce bill. This is really interesting because at the time, people could not seek out a divorce unless it was for like mental instability or you had to really prove that you were in like a life death situation to get yourself out of this divorce. This now allowed women particularly to no longer need to prove a wrongdoing to get a divorce. They can seek a divorce for any reason at all. Absolutely. This started to change laws all across the U.S. and transferring and doing a legal transformation of marriage and the divorce. And there was like a divorce revolution from the 1960s Mm -hmm. to 80s, like especially in the 70s. People were like had this ability to get out of marriages now. It obviously was not culturally accepted. Like there's a whole other thing on top of divorce. Like there is this this cultural stigma like you got a divorced. You're a failure in your life. You're failing your marriage. You need to make this work for the children. However, at the time, though, getting a divorce was still more easy. It was easier accessible for the wealthy elites. It was a lot harder to get divorced for if you were in a very poor or working class vulnerability or a person of color because you were not able to access. It wasn't accessible to you. It was also very expensive as well. Yeah. And since I've never been married, I've also never been divorced. So my have like no frame of reference here besides watching my friends go through divorces and seeing what that is all about. Mm -hmm. Getting married and marriage is a massive deal. It massively changes your life. And so does divorce. But it was so wonderful that people were allowed to be like to get divorced because they were unhappy. Like this just didn't work out. Okay, well, let's just get divorced instead of having to prove by like any doubt whatsoever. Like, nope, we have to divorce. This is it. There's no if, ands, or buts. We chose to get married. We should Mm -hmm. be able to choose to get divorced. Women were actually, they felt 
freer and more confident in the 60s and 70s to get divorced, leave those bad marriages. Our hungry wives were like, okay, I'm hungry for more. I'm able to get it now. Mm -hmm. Able to get it. Feminism, sexual revolution, the employment changes for women allowed them more freedom to get out of a marriage. Marriage used to be about duty, obligation, and sacrifice. But marriage started becoming more of a thing to focus on individual fulfillment and personal growth, right? Yes. And happiness within the marriage. It wasn't about this obligation to the family. It was obligation, yes, to your family, but also more importantly, to yourself. And if you are unhappy, get out of that situation. So yes, the 70s marked a period for changes in the institution of marriage and what it looked like. It evolved Marriage evolved, divorce evolved. Interesting fact, 1962, about half of American women agreed with the idea that when there are children in the family, parents should stay together, even if they're unhappy. By 1977, though, only 20% of American women held this view. Right. And I think that's so interesting that you bring up, because we bring up the item items of the sexual revolution impacting the way the marriages are changing, right? The, the swinging 70s, the spouses mm. are finding new partners, creating higher expectation in marital relationships. You know, yep. you said the feminist movement. And like you said, the psychological revolution, this idea that you do not need to marry just to have a family and to have a decent job. You can marry for love. The idea yes. of a soulmate, the idea of a soulmate marriage. I mean, I have this quote from social historian uh, Barbara Defoe Whitehead, who talks about divorce was not only an individual right, but also a psychological resource. The dissolution of marriage offer the chance to make oneself over from the inside out to refurbish and express the inner self and to acquire certain valuable psychological assets and competencies such as initiative, assertiveness, and stronger and better self-image. We see this in Joan. She hasn't mm. applied for a divorce. We get an accidental yeah. murder. But, <laughs> or was it accidental? <laughs> Ooh. But we don't, but this is what divorce was allowing for people to have now. We get lower marriage rates and we get less, and then over time we'll get less divorces because like you said, birth control, higher incomes for women, but being able to get a divorce and changing the idea of marriage and what marriage is all about was allowing people to have more freedom and to move forward with their lives. Absolutely. We get these divorces but then also we get less we get you know we start to change the idea of marriage and then you know if people are getting married less we have less a divorce rate because people start having higher expectations for their relationships before they get into them yeah no exactly and there's another fun fact so it's like we talked about what about the children what about the adults right what about the adults so from an emotional and social perspective about 20 percent of adult uh, divorce adults find their lives enhanced and another 50% seem to suffer no long-term ill effects, right? According to research by a certain psychologist like Mavis Hetherington. So adults who initiate a divorce are especially likely to report they're flourishing afterwards and they're doing just fine. Are you doing just fine, Jess? Oh, are, are doing- you thriving <laughs> after you've been divorced? <laughs> yes. And I love that you bring that up because, well, okay. So when I got divorced, I thought I wasn't going to thrive. I thought I was going to be like my biological mother and going to have to go on welfare and was going to be, you know, in this terrible situation and see what she went through. Cause I saw what my mother went through when she got a divorce and it was terrible. And I remember yeah. how in the nineties, they tried to re- save marriage and like, right. don't get divorced because look at how it impacts the children. It is terrible. Okay. First of all, it is the way that people handle their divorces. Yeah. That in the children is not the actual act of getting divorced if they had stayed together my life would have been so much more worse (laughs) and the fact it's just the way that people handle getting divorced is that changes how people handle it but 
I remember being so fearful about getting a divorce because I was like, I'll end up like that. I'll end up in a situation where I'm worse off than I was before. But when I finally made that step, I'm like, oh no, I'm much better off because I'm much happier because when I'm happy, I can do the things I want to do to make my life better instead of being in a marriage that I'm miserable at and just not making things better for myself at the end of the day. Yes, absolutely. Marital happiness is important. And another fun fact. So later in the 2000s, marital happiness is hovering around 60% in men and women, 60%. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> So things are changing. And so in my mind, I was like, what if Jack wasn't killed by Joan? Okay. You know, I think that with her newfound confidence from becoming a witch that she would have eventually divorced him. She would have been like, you know what I have again, we're maybe would have taken some time, but she has this confidence. We know in the seventies, we're able to get divorced. If she's like, I'm just unhappy. This is not working for me anymore. There you go. We can get divorced and move on with your life. And she can do whatever it is that she would like to do. Deeply unhappy. She was unsatisfied, unfulfilled with her position in that marriage and her status in life. She was bored, hungry. She wanted more than what was on her plate, right? And like I said, you really start to see her smile when she starts making these conscious decisions for her that are outside of the box, where she starts having sex with Greg. She feels more liberated. She starts thinking about what Joan wants, not what Jack wants or what Nikki wants, what Joan wants. (laughs) Yes, yes. And we are taught for so long and even still in ways that what we want in our relationship with ourself is not as important as our relationship with our family, with our partners or whomever, particularly partners and family, Mm -hmm. right? We forget about ourselves. Yeah. And this brings me into this idea because let's jump into the childlessness. (laughs) Child free, child, I sorry, prefer free. to say living child free. Yes. Let's talk about millennials, which we are mm-hmm. and having children because yeah. that is big, right? In the seventies, you definitely have kids. Like that's yeah. just an expectation. Yeah. Like I said, you get married, you have kids, you die. Yeah. And Joan watches that. Like we see that, like she wants a relationship with her daughter, but at the same time too, though, her daughter treats her like a stranger and she kind of treats her daughter yeah. like a bit of a, like a stranger. Like you can tell that yeah. they are two different women of two different generations going two different ways, but Joan yes. doesn't want to go the way that she's going. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Getting married is a massive decision. It's a yeah. massive life changing decision. With legal legal implications, complications, I think it's deeply outdated. I don't think it's needed for a committed relationship to happen. A legal document does not make anyone happier and make them less likely to harm you or leave you, right? And that's how I view marriage. So now, since I'm just on the marriage topic, so Jess, you were married, Mm -hmm. got divorced, and now vow never to get married again. Why? Because to me, when I got married, I felt like I was doing a social obligation or, and I was also using it as a way to escape my dysfunctional family because I didn't, didn't feel like I had the means within myself or the strength within myself to take care of myself. So I felt like I moved into a relationship with someone that was very incompatible for me when I really think about it at the end of the day. And I decided I need to become that wife. I need to, my marriage is what's going to save me. and what's going to help me get through my life. And I felt trapped. I felt like I had this document that kept me staying longer than I know I should have and making, you know, the right decision, not just for myself, but also for my husband at the time, because we also wanted different things. I, when I went into my marriage, I said, I never want children, period. That conversation never ended. 
I think one point in my life, I said, mm, maybe I want kids with this person once. I slipped up once. Oh, wow. Then I, then I, then I realized, I was like, no, 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 I never want this. And I was very firm on that again because I, I got caught up in the whole, like, people around me were having children. They're all exciting. And, you know, and if yeah. I had, if my husband and I, ex-husband and I jumped in at that time, I probably would have had like a 13-year-old by now. <laughs> You know, oh, but I, but I, but we didn't. Cause at the time he was like, mm, I don't want children, but he wavered back and forth a lot yeah. between wanting children and not wanting children. But when I wavered the one time I went back and said, I never want children, but that was an expectation on us to have yeah. children. And I was yeah. like, mm, I don't, that's the next step, right? First comes love, then comes marriage, then comes so-and-so and a baby <laughs> carriage. Right. I didn't want that. Yep. I really did not want that. And that was you know, in the last couple of years of my marriage, we fought about that a lot. That's yep. what he wanted to carry on his legacy. And yes. I was like, mm, I don't, I, I have many reasons why I don't want to bring children into this world. Yeah. One yeah. of them for sure was like, my child does not carry on my legacy. I do that. You do that. Not my children. They have their own world, their own legacy. Right. And so you're and you vowed never to get married. Never again. Why? Because I don't want to be entangled in that way again. That was stressful. You entangle your I finances with believe them. Believe it. You entangle yeah. your life together with them, like everything. And when we ended up having to separate, it was traumatic because we had to figure out finances. We had to figure out stuff. I had to like, you know, all I didn't, you know, and I felt like I lost like a sense of myself. I also felt like a giant failure because like around me, everyone else was having houses and kids and they're doing really great in their life. And I'm like, mm, I'm like in my mid thirties getting divorced and I have six cats moving into an apartment with a bunch of old people. Look at me. Right. <laughs> I felt like a failure as a woman, but at the yeah. end, you know, so, and the reasons why I vowed never to do that again, cause I never want to put myself in that position again. I also value my independence way too much now to want to give that up. So even and the fact that I do live with one of my partners, we also still have very independent lives of each other. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right. And having kids is an enormous decision, even bigger than the marriage, because you can divorce the person and never see them again. That's frowned upon if you have kids. So, and that's fair, right? Yeah. So having children is a massive, massive decision. I also have never wanted kids. I never envisioned myself with kids. And at 38, I remain very firm in that desire never to have them. Again, no interest. I honestly see them as more of a hindrance to me and in my life than an additional benefit. Well, one of the questions I want to ask you is, you because obviously you've thought long and hard about this, but why have you never wanted to even try getting married to experience that? Aspect of entanglement, which you you brought up for sure, but it doesn't, it doesn't mean anything to me. Marriage hmm. doesn't mean anything ceremony means nothing to me. Legal documentation means nothing to me. Mm -hmm. I've been in very committed long-term relationships without the marriage umbrella, because to me, again, it doesn't mean anything. A ring, oh God, mm -hmm. the ring means nothing. Ceremony means nothing. Cause in the end, people are going to do what they want to do. Yeah. I'm going to do what I want to do. I can, doesn't prevent my partner from doing whatever they want to do. We cannot control people. Yeah. As much as we like to think we can, we cannot control people, their thoughts, their emotions, their re responses. What we can control is our response to a situation. Mm -hmm. So no, yeah. I've just have never seen any value in marriage, a legal documented marriage. 
children. No, they're hugely <laughs> expensive going down like facts and facts and facts and figures. Holy moly. Yeah. Are they expensive? They take a hit to your sense of self and identity. Your romantic relationship with your partner takes a massive hit. Definitely. It's no easy feat. So when people say, well, why don't you just have kids? It's not, it's, shouldn't be so casual. It should not be so casual and nonchalant. It changes your entire life. It takes so much out of you financially, emotionally, and physically. It can change your body. It just is absolutely life-changing. So you can't, that's a big decision for one to make, right? It's huge, especially Massive. for women. Because like <laughs> when we decide to want to have children, it, it, could, it could stall our careers because we're still not in a place in society where they'd be like, oh, okay, it's okay for you to not continue promoting yourself in your workplace because- yeah. You, have a, you have a child to care. And like, it's okay if you want to take time off to care. You're like, well, I don't really want to, because I want to be here for this project. But like, you know, yeah. you're, you're given these like free cars to go do these things. But at the same time too, you're like, no, this is going to stall my career because I have to go home for a year to take care of my child. And then I also, I'm not yeah. saying that's not a bad thing. Like there are women out there who are very successful and have children and have great careers. Totally. And, but for some of us, as we have that fear because that's still very prevalent for us. Yeah. There still is unfortunately uneven parenting. Yes. Even though our fathers do have a bit, bigger role than let's say in the seventies, when Joan was a wife and a mother, mm-hmm. she was a full-time mother. Yes. And he was allowed to work now. Yes, we can work. We could not work. We have more choice and freedom, but most of the the home labor and the parenting labor is still falling upon women. Anytime I go and visit my family and see that dynamic between my brother and his wife, both have great successful careers, but at the end of the day, more of the responsibility still falls on my sister-in-law. It still mm. does. And that is just like, I guess it's still this ingrained thing that the woman is going to take charge for the children. And you bring up this really great thing about how we live in a different world now than our parents did and that Joan and Jack did, right? Income equality is, it's real. Higher education is hard to obtain. There is debt. There is lack of employment and career. There's, you know, the improvement in wage and loss of long-term job security. Like, you know, like we don't have those same things that Jack would have had. Then like if the job that he was in, he would have been in it for forever. Like that's his job type thing, right? He has that stability. We often as millennials have to work second or third jobs. There's a lot of depression and mental health issues that are more present more than ever. And we're like, the world is literally falling apart around us. And so I'm less likely to want to bring children into a world of this nature, right? Yeah. I think it's hard and really difficult sometimes for women to tell the difference between a biological urge to be a mother, Mm -hmm. the surrender to pressure to have kids, and then your own actual authentic desires to have kids that gets like all convoluted. And then you don't really know what to do. And if you make the quote wrong decision, you might end up regretting having children. And that is quite depressing. We read about people regretting having children and holy moly, is that hard to read about. And regretting having children is not about not loving the kids that you have. It's that wishing you would have made a different choice. And there is pressure and you, you might've felt this pressure, Jess, in your marriage to have children to maybe appease our partners, appease our husbands, our wives, men feel this as well. They can regret being fathers, but because it might be a deal breaker. They're like, do I lose this person I love or do I have kids? Mm -hmm. That is a massive thing. It wouldn't be for me. I would find a new partner. I'm not going through the process of putting a child in the world just to save this one person. 
No, it's, absolutely not. But that's me. That's me. It's emotionally draining and heartbreaking. Yep. There was a whole year of back and forth between my ex-husband and I about him getting a vasectomy and not wanting a vasectomy and me wanting to get my tube site. Like I want it. I did. I said, I don't want this. And if he's like, well, if you don't want children, then we don't want this marriage. I'm like, well, yikes. Then, yeah. 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 That is like, an ultimatum. When you're and you're, and you're in a situation where like, I love this person. I don't want to lose my marriage. I don't want to lose my entire life. I'm terrified. You're like, oh, what can I do to make this work? Right. But like by the end, but like I'll say later on, like as I started to find my own voice and stand up for myself, I was like, no, I'm not changing my desire to not want to have children. Because I even told him, I said, if I have a child, I will resent you and I will resent that child because yeah, I, would, I would have given up something that I did not want to give into because that's what you wanted. And that's what's going to save our marriage. Do not have children to save marriages. Like that's just as a child of divorce. As a child of seeing what happens, you know, when you bring children to a, into a relationship that is not working, often what ends up happening is that the children end up suffering because of that. But also we see the inequality of our mothers. We know we see how they're stranded with limited career options and they get the short end of the stick. You know, my mother lived on welfare. We lived on welfare. She didn't have the great time that my father had when he was out marrying his new wife and, you know, building his career and she was building her career because they didn't have children. They would just have kids come to them every once a week type thing and then you know and then they could continue off to go and doing their lives and I didn't want to do yeah. that to another child you know especially because later on my husband and I got divorced you know, like, <laughs> great now you're a single mom Jess that is <sighs> that's a good look for you right single mom with six cats I would be Angela I would be the Angela I for, think that the last thing to- I'll say about children and having them is that there still is, it is less than the 1970s. Thank goodness. Thank Satan that it's different, (laughs) but there is still this entrenched belief, deeply rooted belief that the maternal instinct for women is innate and unconditional. That is not true. And we should not expect that of women. And if you don't want to have children, you are not a bad woman. You're not. No. And that leads us into reinvention. And we're going to see this in season of the witch with Joan. She reinvents herself when she decides to embrace the mantle of the witch to to embrace the idea of what it is to be a witch. And it's really interesting that when we see this rise of witchcraft, we see it always tends to rise during times of social upheaval. And we're seeing yeah. it now. It is we are seeing witchcraft is on the rise again, is very progressive, is very inclusive. It's very um, diverse because the witch is the new feminist icon. She was a feminist icon back in the 1970s. She was for Joan because Joan was able to reinvent herself and find a way. And this is what's happening now again with uh, the modern witches. We are becoming unruly figures and we're threatening the patriarchy with our feminist, uh, with our feminist <laughs> ideas because we want to see re- because we're seeing a rise of regressive politics and we're seeing a resurgence of white supremacy and xenophobia and anti-feminist sentiments. We have a global pandemic. We have a climate crisis. <laughs> people are being women and people are being marginalized again. So when the witches are on the rise because she's like, no, there is can't there have are, this. Can't have this. <laughs> there, there are so many great things that are happening in the world and so many ways that you can live your life. And Joan shows us that there's a new way that she can live her life. And that's where the image of the, the season of the witch comes from. Absolutely. And you said I and we numerous times because you are a witch. I am right? a witch. Yes, yes. I am a witch. And I know you don't call yourself a witch yourself, but you relate a lot to a lot of witch sentiments yep. and a witch I a lot of witchy ideas. Absolutely. So yes, I myself am not a witch. I'm an atheist and probably later on a non-theistic Satanist, whatever. That's future <laughs> Kelly to figure out. But not spiritual whatsoever, but I do strongly resonate with the symbol or archetype of the witch because I have pretty much always been independent, 
rebellious and outside many social norms. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, I understand, you know, the symbol of the witch and all of these things and why feminism and witchcraft is related. So much of our work that we do of Spinsters at Horror is related to the symbol of the witch. It comes up time and time again yeah. because she is a feminist icon right? Lilith. Yes. (laughs) Our feminist icon. So we have seen now because it's 2021, witchcraft has gone mainstream and there are many different definitions of what a witch is. Jessica talk about that forever. Not everyone's (laughs) a pagan, not everyone's Wiccan. And Pam Grossman, who is an author and does the witch wave podcast. She said as quote, I'm doing magic when I marched in the streets for causes I believe in. You're right. There's always been an uptick. There's always this parallel between social upheaval or something going on politically or big changes in the world. Oh, the witch is back. The symbol of the witch. Witches are here. We can't have our world and our environment and our nature being harmed by, like you said, racism or patriarchy, any kind of oppression whatsoever. They fight that. She has always fought that. Um, And right now, casting spells, assembling altars is kind of lucrative. You're seeing people embracing that, but also being able to build small businesses off of it. You do see a lot of stuff on Instagram and TikTok and stuff like that. But, you know, there are people that are doing right by it Mm -hmm. and doing good for themselves and doing good in the world with it. But, it, you know, it ebbs and flows, right? It's There's different definitions of it. And sometimes, unfortunately, we do fall into our false witches or the ascetic witches, as I want to call them who don't actually practice the craft, we talked about it. You say you're a witch that comes with centuries of history. So you better know kind of what that actually means in a cultural context, historical context, in your own personal context, right? There's a commodification of witchcraft. There is, we talked about cultural appropriation, but the commodification is a little icky for me. What do you think about that, Jess? It is very icky. I remember um, a couple of years ago when it was Sephora was coming out with their like oh. witch kit where they had oh. like, white mm. sage and tarot cards. I was mad. Like, because like, <laughs> yeah. like, I was like, as a witch, what's important to me is the history that comes with it, what comes with the activism that comes with it. And like I said earlier, when you take on the mantle of a witch, you're not just taking on like an aesthetic. Yes, there's an aesthetic that comes with it. We all love Stevie Nicks and her flowing stuff. <laughs> obviously, I'm, magic. I'm, yes. you know, I'm obviously displaying it myself as well because I also feel like I I feel more free in myself when I dress this way but at the same time too and I also feel more comfortable when I have my elements around me but I also recognize too that there is a power that comes with calling myself a witch I have an active responsibility to speak out when I see things that are inappropriate that are happening that is you know against um, other people like against people of color when it's against you know when we're seeing um, misogyny happening in the workplace when I'm seeing like I see that there is a responsibility that comes with calling myself a witch which is is being part of an activist and is calling things out and, you know, representing that archetype of the witch, the unconventional woman making change and making strides in the world. So when I saw this marketing and this commodification, I was mad because I was like, I understand what you're trying to do. But at the same time, too, though, it's re- it's not necessarily respecting what comes with the whole idea of being a witch. Like, yes, there's an aesthetic that comes with it. 
but there's also a responsibility. And like, I, know, I almost want to say like, you know, Peter Parker, you know, with, with every great power comes great responsibility. <laughs> it's true. It's yeah. true. And that's what I've learned. Mm. You know, if you're going to say you're a witch, then if somebody asks you why you're a witch or what does that mean to you? I, you, I think you better have something to say yeah. and have an explanation for what it is that you're doing. Witchcraft, 70s, historically, now is an unconventional source of power. And when there is upheaval and trauma and terrible things happening in our world where we feel that we're out of control, there can be this element of feeling like we can control. Or throughout history, the attempts to control women, which have masqueraded as crackdowns on witchcraft, we see the witches rising up, our symbol of female power, especially in the face of violence, male violence, misogyny, and all of that. It is a form of activism. And it always has been, I think. I feel like that is something, you know, witchcraft is is feminism. It's inherent, inherently political. There was a quote by someone who did a witch and an author in, um, her name is Gabriella Herstick in Sabbath Magazine. She had said that witchcraft is feminism. It's inherently political. It's always been about the outsider, about the woman who doesn't want what the church or the patriarchy wants. So when we have terrible things happening in our world, they're going to, I'm going to say, bind together. They're going to come together together online coven solo yes. practitioners right the internet actually for all the bad things it is but it does bring people together this like magical resistance right this yeah. whole the hashtag bind trump right yeah digital hashtag which the vote yeah digital commons binding with each other around the world to do global magic to help each other and to create a community because sometimes yeah. you can feel very uh, isolated as a, a witch in areas when you don't have that community as well i'm myself i'm a solitary practitioner but i love when i see other witches doing stuff in the community i'm just like yes you go girl like i love it like yeah absolutely yeah. absolutely and then it come, we come to the end of season of the witch when Joan is initiated into the coven. So like we said, initially she's practicing on her own as she's kind of figuring it all out. Yep. And now she is ready to come and worship, worship in quotations, um, practice with other witches. However, strong, strong symbolism throughout this entire yes. movie. I'll yeah. go back. The opening of the movie has Joan with a red collar and a red leash being led by Jack like a dog to a yeah. cage. At the end of the movie, we see Joan with a red rope wrapped around her neck like a collar and a leash led to the altar on her knees to worship another god or gods she used to worship her husband and now it's perhaps a religion and so it can be interpreted in different mm-hmm. ways this is why we said and we opened this is she just trading one gilded cage for another kind of up for interpretation i think she is i i do in a in a sense like i i think that she has traded a different type of cage in the sense that she will never truly be recognized as herself as an individual. Like she'll always be seen as part of a fad, as part of a, and I think that's more at the end of the scene where she's at the party there. Like I do, like when I do see the um, binding of the net of the rope around her neck and bring it to her and like, are you going to worship this way? That to me, I I get like, because I'm like, I don't like that type of structured worship or that type of structured like religion. This is why I draw to witchcraft because I'm like, I like that it's less structured and that I can practice as I will and follow my means. But when like you get into Wicca, you have to follow more of a structure. And I don't like that. So I can, I can kind of see where like Joan's like, well, am I trading one 
you know, set yeah. of beliefs for another? <clears throat> or am I not truly being into, you know, true to myself and my own belief and my own practice? Yeah. Is she truly an individual? Mm-hmm. Maybe not yet. Yes. Right. She's found something new, something very exciting that has given her confidence in new life, yes. which is fantastic. Yeah. But that's the movie's almost over. The last scene is at a big party. She's after, you know, she's kind of done her, she's hidden away for a bit with her grief. Yeah. Uh, over Jack's death, but then she's at the party and there's like, there's this allure to her, this confidence, right? She's holding herself differently. Her head is higher. Her shoulders are back and it's outrageous hairstyle. Oh my God. Her elaborate, I almost want to say elaborate costuming and her hair and everything is just different, right? Makeup for sure. Mm. And one of the women that is at the party is just like, yeah, I, she doesn't say this. We can tell by the, the body language. She's like, there's something different about Joan. What is going on here? Yeah. She's like, hi, Joan, how are you doing? Like, you look great. What's going on? And she's like, I'm a witch. But then back here in the background of the party, they're like, oh, you remember Jack's wife? Yes. Yes. So she it, either will always in some way be referred to as Jack's wife. Um, but now she's the witch. She's not Joan yet. She is a witch or she was Jack's wife. And even then, like they treat her as like a party novelty, a novelty. Like, have you met our special guest, Joan? She's very, she's a witch now. She's no longer has a husband. She's now on her own. Like she is a novelty (laughs) because she's new. She is something that women weren't before. She is on her own. She is finding her own identity as a woman. She has now become an unconventional woman and she's a novelty to these other women at the party. Right. And this absolutely happens to us as Kelly and I will talk about very shortly <laughs> as unconventional women that sometimes yep. we find ourselves in circles with people that are just like, Ooh, what are you like? Yeah. And they're like, yeah, what are you exactly? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, who are you and what are you doing? <laughs> yeah. Right. Like where's your husband? You're not married. Like you don't have children. You're 38 and you don't have kids yet. What's going on? <laughs> what is going on? Yeah. So folks, we are here to tell you and tell Joan wherever she is in the world that there's so many ways to live your life. The default social expectation in our world now still is heterosexual monogamy, but there are so many, so many diverse ways to live and conduct your life, your sexual life, your romantic life. It's inspiring really the varied ways that you can live your life. Where I have personally landed now at 38 And being single or a term that I recently learned and I really enjoy is self-partnered. Okay. So I am single. I love it. Okay. And here are some reasons why (laughs) being single and untethered is amazing. So there's different terms like responses of horror. We've talked about this before. I have like fully enveloped and taken in the term of spinster, live alone, no partners, have a bunch of cats, you know, that's like, kind of a cliche, but it's reclaiming that term and reclaiming being single, but positive about it. So wonderful aspects to being untethered is that you can focus on yourself and other important relationships like your family and friends, because often in our default life of monogamy and heterosexuality, friends get pushed to the side and your friendships are so deeply important to you in having a life outside of romance. But the the relationship that I find that gets put aside in the 70s, even now, 
is the relationship with yourself. It's really important to have a positive, healthy, loving relationship with yourself. Okay. And that is something that we are told not to do because it is seen as selfish. Do not take care of yourself. Do not put your needs in front of anybody else's, but you should because you will be happier for it. Trust me. Trust me. (laughs) It can be very empowering to live alone and single and as a free agent. It's important for me not to be defined by your relate my relationship status or anybody's relationship status. Independent freedom, flexibility. You can travel, you can live alone, be responsible for yourself only. There's so much more to life than romance. There is so much time and energy for single women to put into finding partners that it takes away time from yourself. And that can lead to people settling. Do not settle. Do not settle because you're afraid to be alone. Don't settle because you're afraid to be single or to be lonely. And quick fact, (laughs) some studies have shown, and I could link this somewhere for sure, Mm -hmm. but show that women who remain single and child-free actually live longer, healthier, happier, healthier lives. Okay. (laughs) And being alone does not mean you're lonely. Loneliness is an emotional response to feeling unloved and unseen. And that can be, that can happen in and out of relationships. We see that in Joan in season of the witch. She is not seen. She is essentially invisible to everyone around her. And that is not a good feeling. That's not what you want to be feeling. You want to be loved. You want to be seen. You want to be heard. And you can do that in and out of relationships. Absolutely. You do not need romance or a partner or kids or marriage or any of those things that people tell you you need to completely. You are a complete whole person as yourself. And that is so important to me. And as 38 years of life, I've come to really realize the importance of all of that and how true that is. I want to make a note on couples privilege Mm -hmm. because that is a thing. And I'm not saying it negatively because it just is inherent in our society that society values couples over non-couples. Okay. So this is primarily what we can see in monogamous situations, but it also is seen in polyamory, which is where Jess will definitely jump in. (laughs) But couples privilege is the culturally entrenched priority and measure of value given to couples by society, either by the public perception of them and how you're seen in the world visually and the legal status of them. Talk about the legality of marriage because that means couples are more valued. They are seen as a real commitment, the real relationships in marriage. That means that is a real relationship. So any other relationship that I've had, whether it was eight years or not, was not real. And some sad things about couples privilege, which is predominantly you see it in marriage, is if I fall ill and I'm in the hospital, Mm -hmm. only my family could see me. Yeah. Or my spouse, but I don't have a spouse. My family lives in North Bay, but because let's say a romantic partner of mine, we are not entangled via legal means. They are not considered family. That part of it really upsets me because if I was sick, I would want my friends or my partner, if we're not, you know, we're not married to be able to come see me and give me support. (laughs) 
Mm. You get spousal insurance benefits. There's tax benefits to being mm. married. I don't know yeah. if you can chime in on some of that stuff because I was never oh, married, but there I know tons that, of, that stuff exists. Uh, there were tons of benefits to being yes. married. I, you know, like insurance, like, right, my yep. ex-husband, I could be on his insurance. When him and I divorced, I got half of his RSVs because like when we got divorced, yep. I was like legally obligated to yep. whatever he had and whatever I had, right? There totally. were definitely a lot of benefits to that. And this is why it's like a really interesting jumping off point that you bring up couple privilege because when you jump into the poly world, which is what I am, I am a polyamorous woman. Being poly in a modern world is actually overtly a political movement. It's not just about free love and being able to have relationships with many people and have like, you know, it's like everyone looks at polyamory as always just being like, you know, just having sex with everyone all the time. No, that's open relationships. And then you can have that, you know, polyamory is more about relationship and creating more emotional attachment to other people in your life. But it, it is overtly a political movement because it's rejecting these capitalist ideas and these conventional lifestyles of that. You, when you're a couple, you automatically get these privileges because yes, as a couple, all my other partners don't automatically get privileges because they're with me, right? They don't necessarily are, mm-hmm. um, can get this, like if we were married, then yes, they would have been, they be included in my benefits. We can go and open get a mortgage together, right? Like as a poly couple, I can't open mortgages with any of my partners because I'm not legally seen as a couple because I'm seen as a liability because that relationship could end. Mm-hmm. So being dating multiple partners as a poly person is inherently political, uh, political because I'm not linked to any kind of economic or political avenues or resources, right? I'm outside the mold. I am breaking the mold, you know? And so as, um, so I keep saying polyamorous, but also it's under the umbrella of, umbrella of ethical non-monogamy, which we, is common in many uh, same sex and also heterosexual relationships. And we're seeing more and more people moving to these alternative styles of relationships because, because of toxic- jumping outside the box, Jess, because we're jumping, outside. Outside the we're goddamn jumping boxes. out of the box. We're addressing toxic monogamy. We're addressing ideas that one person cannot be your soul, everything that cannot be to fulfill all your needs at all day. And in all my relationships, all my different partners satisfy different needs within me. And it, not one pressure is put on one person to be my everything, because that's a lot of pressure. I felt that yep. pressure. It is so much pressure to be someone's everything, to yep. be that person that has to take care of them, but also make decisions with them and to make sure, you know, like I never felt like I had my own life. I was a unit. It was me and this one person. And this was, it It was me and Nathaniel. We were a unit. I never had my own identity, but as a poly individual, I have my own identity. And that was Mm -hmm. something that was very important for me when I moved into my polyamorous relationships is my identity, having my identity. I became a witch just before I got divorced. My husband Mm -hmm. hated it. And when I moved into all my relationships, this is who I am. This is my identity. These are my boundaries. Do not cross them. If these, you know, I was able to assert myself and have healthy romantic relations with the people. I was also able to have more, I'm able to have more financial freedom. I'm able to, you know, have my own uh, finances. And I know that some poly couples that come together and they entangle those resources, but that's mm-hmm. all within negotiation. And I find this really interesting in, in uh, non-monogamous relationships, you're breaking the societal standard of communication. You're having healthier relationships because you're talking about your needs. You're talking about your wants. You're being assertive about your independence. 
You're not just compromising on all your decisions. You know, like there's constant conversation, which tends to not happen in a lot of monogamous relationships. And I'm saying this because I was in a monogamous relationship. I know what, what happens. I'm not just, you know, someone saying like speaking about this outside the box. I, I know what goes into these things. And yeah. I'm not saying that polyamory is perfect for everyone. One of the things I learned in my journey <laughs> is that there's a relationship spectrum. You can, Absolutely. You can be in a relationship with whoever yep. you want and however way you want. And you just need to know what you want as an individual. And like you said, Kelly, at the end of the day, being self-partnered, being also in polyamorous relationships is you need to know what you want and have your own identity and walk into them very confidently and be able to express those things and to be able to hold those things forward because polyamory is not perfect within itself. There's some issues in it. You know, the one penis policy, mansplaining, unicorn hunting, people trying to use it to fix their already not great relationships. Like, no, those cracked foundations, you know, lack of racial diversity is, and it is also primarily, you know, middle-class and white, but we're also trying to open more to more communities and say like, no, this is something that everyone can be involved in and express, but it's not perfect. And there's things that we still need to work on. Yeah. So that is just two ways to live your life. <laughs> and there is so much. And I also, cause this is a video want to shout out to books. We're big proponents on reading and researching and getting books. Jess, I think has a hundred polyamorous oh, books by yes. now. There's spinster which is making a life of one's own, living apart together. Cause I yeah. never want to live with a partner and you can yeah. do things. The smart girl's guide to polyamory, the ethical slut. And one of my favorites stepping off the relationship, the relationship escalator. What Thank changed you. my life? <laughs> <laughs> it is. And I think that it's important for folks to get out in the world and see what else the world has to offer you. Yeah. So why does this relate to season of the witch? Because Joan is starting that journey and becoming, embracing the identity of the witch and embracing the ideas of second wave feminism, of the feminist mystique, you know, and, and, and addressing those political upheaval moments and stuff like that. She is saying that you can live an unconventional life and here's how you can do it. And she's just starting that journey. Those, the women of the 1970s who did that opened a way and they paved a way for us women to continue these journeys and continue educating people and keep talking to people about other ways in which you can live your life. And on that note, let's move into Spencer's final thoughts. But before we round off this episode with our Spencer's final thoughts, we wanted to extend a big old thank you to our sponsor, Brutalities. As Spencer's, we obviously adore tea. So we really love sitting down to watch a horror movie and drink a hot mug of tea. Please use the code SPENCER15 to get 15% off your order. For our beloved Canadian listeners, please reach out to the company for shipping prices. When I first saw George Romero's season of The Witch, it was a few months before my own marriage would dissolve. (laughs) And I remember I resonated so much with the character of Joan. She was a lonely, unhappy housewife of the 20th century, and so was I. Not much had changed. Like, despite all the work that feminists had been doing, the rise of witchcraft, I felt like things were still the same. Women were still finding themselves in this narrative of riding the relationship as their marriage, house, kids, and then death with the same person. And that is it. And if you resisted this in any way, people turned against you because you were not fulfilling the societal norm. This message is still very present today. And if you're an unhappy wife in your marriage, then there's something, you're told that there's something wrong with you. And it's not the marriage, it's not the other person. You need to fix it. If you don't fix 
fix it. You're a failure. That's why I ended in, I stayed in a 10 year marriage because I was struggling to make it work because I felt like a failure. I have always resonated with the archetype and the image of the witch since I was a child. I saw freedom and empowerment. I saw activism. I saw ways in which I can make things change by engaging with the idea of the witch. I dabbled throughout my life, always in secret and in shame because I grew up in a Catholic household and it was often demonized. And later on in my marriage, I would eventually start to embrace my fully witchy instincts and my husband demonized me. He would tell me I was causing, I was casting spells on him in the middle of the night. He would tell his friends that I was bringing darkness into his home and that I was making, I was making it hard for him to meditate. Bullshit. When I found the witch, I found my voice. I found my ability to speak for myself. And he just did not like that. I found my own journey. I found my own friends. I found my own life. So like Joan, I was able to embrace my life and find myself. And I pursued my wants. I pursued my desires and I did not hold back. I did not want children and I knew this and this is why our relationship failed on many other reasons. You know what? And I'm glad for it. I'm standing up for myself and I am breaking away from a societal norm. I found my identity and I found who I am as a bisexual polyamorous witch. I am an unconventional woman of the 2010s and I have found happiness. And while identifying as a witch has come with my own trial and tribulations, it's a new activism in me that I want to show other women and women and other ways of living and not being dictated by the patriarchy because the patriarchy, what they want from us keeps us compliant, silent, and under control. And I don't want to be silent anymore. Thank you very much. I will say again to folks at Salem Horror Fest, this has been an absolute treat for us. Another thank you. And it is the season of the witch. I was very, very happy to revisit George Romero's severely underrated season of the witch for this special occasion, as I think it's a very relevant movie for 1972-73 and even in 2021. It brings up the discussion of the value of women, our place in the world, and what we want and desire out of life, whether it is to have one monogamous partner or four in a polyamorous lifestyle. Kids or no kids, dogs or cats, backpacking across Europe or just exploring the city you're in. As the millennials, who are way cooler than I am, would say, live your most authentic life. I can happily say that I am thriving in the life choices I have made for myself, but I think I can honestly say that because I've tried a variety of different things in life, living alone and having roommates. I've lived with a romantic partner. I've done serial monogamy and polyamory. I've done casual dating and casual sex. The common thread is that whenever an intense emotional or even a casual relationship ends for me, I've always had a sense of relief. I am always very, very beyond happy to be single again and untethered. It doesn't take away the impact that these relationships, whether big or small, had on me in my life, but it's something I've noticed at a, as a pattern. I was never a wife nor will I ever be a witch. I am Kelly. Life is a journey. It ebbs and flows and goes forth and whichever. Your wants and desires can change too. And that's okay. Absolutely. I like to think that Joan is still on her journey now. I think the end of season of the witch is truly the beginning of the next chapter in her life. She may or may not continue on being a witch, but what's important is that she made the choice to become one and can choose not to be one. Choice is the important factor in all of this, folks, and it's such a powerful, liberating one. So listeners, what will you choose? The wife or the witch or a delicious combination of both? I love that. Thank you. And that ends our episode on George Romero's Season of the Witch. 
We want to thank Dance with the Dead for our intro and outro music, Robies, and for Brandon, who does all of our promotional work and our materials. And also to all you listeners, we love you guys so much. And thank you so much for having <laughs> us here at Salem Horror Fest and just, you know, helping us get to where we are today. Remind you to follow us on our website, www.spinstersofhorror.com and all of our social media, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Spinsters of Horror. And we also join our coven. You can find us on Facebook at the Spinsters of Horror Coven. We now have a letterbox because we're old spinsters and it takes us a while to get into <laughs> hip things. But search for Spinsters of Horror and you can check out all of the movies we've covered on the podcast and our ratings. We're also on YouTube, search Spinsters of Horror, and we have special fun videos on there for you to watch. Like this one will be there eventually. As well, please write and review us on iTunes and any podcasting app you listen to us on because that obviously gets our hard horror work out there to the world. We have merch. And so please visit TeePublic to purchase our t-shirts. And also if you like what we do and you've liked what you heard today, and if you're a new listener, thank you for coming out and giving us your time. We do have a donate button on our website. But folks, until then, remember, the future of fear is female. <laughs> <laughs>